Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, the podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. It's estimated that by the year 2030, more than half of the world's 2 billion children will not learn basic secondary education level skills like literacy, numeracy, and critical thinking. While this includes 30% of children in high-income countries, over 9 in 10 children in low-income countries will not reach adulthood with the skills they need to thrive. These figures from the International Commission on Financing Global Education Opportunity are reported in a new book from the Brookings Institution Press titled Leapfrogging Inequality, Remaking Education to Help Young People Thrive. It's by Rebecca Winthrop with Adam Barton and Eileen McGivney. But this skills inequality is only part of the global education problem. To put this phenomenon into context, I'm joined today by Rebecca Winthrop, a senior fellow and director of the Center for Universal Education at Brookings. Her research focuses on education in the developing world with special attention to the skills children need to succeed in life and improving quality learning for the most marginalized children and youth, including girls and children affected by extreme violence. Also on today's show, a new edition of What's Happening in Congress with governance studies expert Molly Reynolds, who looks at the major factors that affect midterm elections and what you should watch out for as November nears. You can follow the Brookings Podcast Network on Twitter, at Policy Podcasts, to get the latest information about all of our shows. It's Education Week here on the Brookings Podcast Network. For more on education policy, check out my colleague Adriana Pita's interview on Intersections about the Every Student Succeeds Act. Her guests are Lauren Bauer from the Hamilton Project and Ann Wicks from the George W. Bush Institute. And now, on with the interview. Rebecca, welcome back to the Brookings Cafeteria. Thank you. It's great to be here again. This is your fourth time as a guest on this show, so I'm excited to have you back to talk about your new research on leapfrogging inequality. I started the introduction with a description of the data about the skills inequality, but that's only part of the issue. It's only part of the problem that you address in this book. So why don't we start there? Yeah. The thing that we hit upon was that actually most countries in the world, with the exception of a few countries in Scandinavia, where many people would like to live, I'm sure, most countries face what we are calling the twin problems of skills inequality and skills uncertainty. You already talked about skills inequality. And and when we say skills, it really is competencies, capabilities, knowledge, the ability to do things in life. And skills inequality isn't, in essence, a description of what the current education systems in most countries in the world today are grappling with. They are struggling to deliver education services to all the young people in their country equally. And it's usually wealthy kids or kids in urban areas that are much more able to get the best out of what today's education has on offer. And it's going to take a long time if we keep doing what we're doing to change that. How long? Well, we've done some research. We did some research in the past. Actually, this was part of the research that got me a little bit obsessed with this idea of leapfrogging. We did some research that showed on average, give or take, depending on the country, it's about 100 years for poor kids to catch up to rich kids. That happens here in the U.S. on particular measures. It happens between the developing world and the developed world. So it's a long time. And so that's skills inequality, making sure that the best of what we can do in today's education reaches all kids, regardless of their circumstance. However, that's not the only problem that countries are either facing or going to face soon if they haven't faced it already, which you just alluded to. The other piece is that education systems even and schools and education opportunities for all kids, even kids who are doing pretty well, 
in today's education systems need to reorient themselves to make sure that young people have the competencies, capabilities, skills they need to thrive in a very uncertain future. And that's skills uncertainty. And by uncertain future, I think it's one of the most fascinating aspects of this book. It seems like 100 years ago, maybe 50 years ago, are you saying that the future then, which we're was living more in now, certain. was more certain? <laughs> yeah, it's a really good point, and people often ask that. And we often talk about sort of skills needed for a rapidly changing world. You hear a lot of discussion about, you know, future of work. And the truth is the world has always been rapidly changing. I used to work a lot with young people in refugee camps, and my gosh, their world was rapidly changing. So yes, the world has always been rapidly changing. However, today, if you look at sort of the sets of competencies and skills that education systems are set up to deliver for kids, they don't match very well what we think is probably the best way to prepare kids for a future where the technological advancements are much more rapidly taking over all facets of our life. And whether it's automating tasks within jobs, there's lots of different predictions out there and lots of different experts trying to figure out what's going to happen in the labor market. But we certainly know that tasks within jobs are going to be automated. So thinking really about what we call the breadth of skills, which is basically two things. It's making sure, yes, you have academic knowledge, rigorous knowledge, which has been the primary focus of most education systems, but also now, especially now, you need the competencies to manipulate that knowledge in different contexts over the course of your life. You need to raise lifelong learners. I definitely want to spend most of the time here talking about the future, but let's take a quick detour into the past. Mm -hmm. I was just yep. I was amazed to see one of your chapter headers is about the Prussian model of schooling. Uh, in, in, in a book, Looking to the Future, talking about the Prussian model was really interesting to me also as the descendant of Prussian Germans. I'm interested in everything Prussia. Why this attention to the Prussian model of schooling in a book about leapfrogging to the future? Towards the future, yep. So there's a couple of things. One is we really set out to try to understand what would leapfrogging even look like in education, which is a service you deliver. It's a human process of development and learning. It's different from other sectors, which are more product-focused, like telecommunications or banking. And there was no real definition of what leapfrogging meant. That actually doesn't yet exist in education. It's not well-defined. There's been a few folks who've worked on it a little bit. So we really said, well, let's define it. Let's think about it. Let's put a term out there and think about what it could mean. And to do that, we had to look backwards as well as forwards. We got to the Prussian model because we wanted to figure out a little bit where has this idea of mass schooling come from. And it is actually an amazing idea. I think it's one of the biggest quiet revolutions that the world has seen, which is before the Prussians in the mid-1700s decided that they wanted everybody in their country to learn to read and write, the idea of mass schooling never existed. Schooling and literacy and numeracy were for certain groups within a society. It was not for everybody. Now, they were motivated because they had recently lost a war. They wanted a more well-tooled military, and they thought this would be a good way to do it. But it took off like wildfire. And the Prussian model of schooling is really just a way to talk about the model of delivering mass schooling to young people, which basically looks the same in every country in the world. And... We've gone from 
200 years ago, there was 2.3 million kids in primary school, and now there's well over 700 million, which is 40 times the rate of population growth. So it's been very influential. So how do you define leapfrogging? Leapfrogging for us is rapidly accelerating the pace of change in education so that all kids can develop the full suite of competencies and skills they need to address the future. Can you give an example of what that looks like today in practice? Yeah. So we spend a lot of time learning from innovators and educators and policymakers who are on the front lines doing this work every day, day in and day out, talking to them, looking at their models, and actually collated a big catalog of global education innovations. Maybe we can dive into that later, but what we did find was lots of really cool examples. And there's all sorts of examples. There's examples of an innovation that can come alongside the standard school system. I'll give you a couple examples. One is a hybrid learning program. It's called Hybrid Learning Program in India run by an NGO called Pratam that basically targets upper primary students, middle school students who are in school in the morning. They're only there for half a day. And they give them tablets, offline tablets. They're not connected to the Internet. These are in very, very remote rural villages that they have generators and power but no Internet connectivity. And on the tablets, there's lots of things. They've put games. They've put videos. They've put reading materials. They've put all sorts of things. And they initially were just trying to conduct an experiment and see what would happen. And not only did they hack in and bypass the passwords immediately, even though these kids had probably not seen more than a flip phone before, their literacy and numeracy scores massively increased, their English language scores increased, and then they started creating content. And they were much more savvy. They learned digital navigation skills very quickly, even without the internet, a lot better than their peers in more affluent schools who are sitting in computer labs and sort of learning how to type, et cetera. So that's one example. There's other examples that are government-led where whole sort of systems leapfrog. There's other examples where schools have a model that helps leapfrog. So there's all types. So in this one example, at schools in rural villages in mm -hmm. India, it strikes me that there are going to be a lot of kind of external constraints to a school system being able to engage in leapfrogging in their education system, either resources, perhaps ideology, other external factors, what kinds of other obstacles might be in the yeah. way of doing this? Yeah. So one of the things that we found, which was really interesting, was that by and large, the innovations that we studied, and there were lots of them, and there's lots of people doing tons of different creative things in education. Actually, despite what people think of the education system, it is very innovative. However, most of it is on the margins. So I'll give you another example from Brazil. This is an example that I think we probably talked about before, but illustrates well, where an entire state in Brazil that's a remote rural state really wasn't able to deliver secondary education in the normal school model because it was too remote. They didn't have enough teachers. And they broke the teaching profession into two and sort of had the subject teach lecturing to a, through two-way video uplink to these remote classrooms. And then they had teachers in the classrooms who were mentoring teachers who really helped the kids. And that was an incredibly successful attempt to much more quickly get these kids access to secondary education than would have been if they'd had to build all the schools, train all the teachers, find them, deploy them, etc. So that was really only possible to get to your question about obstacles because I think at least it was a state that wasn't really in the center of Brazil's focus. 
It was the Amazon jungle. It was kind of on the margins, and it was left some space to be able to come up with innovative new ideas. And we do see that that happens a lot. There's a lot of teacher-led innovation that happens at schools, schools that are really productive, that even principal-led innovations, where whole schools can really leap forward and improve outcomes and deliver both academic skills and these 21st century skills at the same time. And the real dilemma is going to be, you know, how do you scale that up? How do you make that rather than the exception but the rule? And now let's hear from Molly Reynolds about what's happening in Congress. My name is Molly Reynolds, and I'm a fellow in the Governance Studies Program at the Brookings Institution. The 2018 congressional primary season is in full swing, with 17 more states holding primaries in June. The November midterms, after all, are less than six months away. As individual races and the battle for control of Congress continue, Here are a few important things to know and to watch. First of all, the president's party almost always loses seats in midterm elections. In only three midterm elections since 1934 has the president's party picked up seats in the House. In the Senate, his party hasn't done much better, gaining seats only five times. The most recent pickups came in 2002 when Republicans benefited from George W. Bush's popularity in the early days of the war on terror. Indeed, presidential popularity is important for understanding what's likely to happen in the midterms, as political scientists generally point to it as one of three major factors that are particularly important in determining midterm outcomes. In addition to how popular the president is, how well the economy is performing also matters. A stronger economy is generally good for the president's party. Finally, the share of seats currently held by the president's party also plays a role. If the party has a large majority, That means it's more likely that some of the seats it holds are vulnerable and thus likely to flip. Certainly, these aren't the only things that will matter in a given congressional election. There is evidence from the 2010 midterms, for example, that suggests that some vulnerable House Democrats lost because they voted for the Affordable Care Act. Specifically, voters perceived legislators who voted for the ACA as more liberal. But as a first approximation, looking at these basic fundamental factors is helpful in formulating expectations about midterm outcomes. A third important thing to know about midterms is that without the presidential race at the top of the ballot to energize voters, turnout tends to be lower. Data from Brookings' Vital Statistics on Congress shows that while turnout averaged roughly 60 percent across the 2008, 2012, and 2016 presidential elections, it came in at only an average of about 38% in the last three midterms. Recent midterm electorates have also tended to be older and whiter than their presidential counterparts. According to exit poll data, in 2014, for example, the electorate was about three percentage points whiter than in 2012, and the share of the electorate over 65 was about 10 percentage points higher in 2014 than in 2012. These dynamics, the tendency of the president's party to lose seats, the role of fundamentals, and the characteristics of the midterm electorate, are helpful in forming expectations about what might happen in November. But what should you watch out for in the meantime? Here are a few tips. First, pay attention to indicators of voter enthusiasm. Data from the Pew Research Center, collected in January 2018, indicates that more Democrats, about 69%, are looking forward to voting in the midterms than Republicans, for whom the figure is roughly 58%. Notably, these figures are flipped from 2014, when Republicans held about a 12 percentage point advantage in terms of enthusiasm about participating in the midterms. 
If this difference in interest in voting is reflected in ultimate turnout figures, it could affect Democrats' chances of retaking control of the House. Second, watch California's primary on June 5th, where, since 2012, primary elections have operated differently than in most other parts of the country. Rather than holding separate contests to select a Republican and a Democratic nominee, all congressional candidates will appear together on the ballot, and the top two vote-getters will advance to the general election in November. In this arrangement, if one party has more quality candidates than the other, it runs the risk of having voters split their votes, leaving each individual candidate with a smaller share than the top two candidates of the other party, and thus shutting the party out of the general election. According to the Los Angeles Times, there are as many as five California districts currently held by Republicans where vote splitting among Democrats could result in no Democratic candidates advancing to the general. In what's likely to be a closely contested national race for control of Congress, such an outcome now could improve Republicans' chances of holding control of the House in the fall. Members of Congress's activities in Washington are also increasingly reflecting this ramp-up of campaign season. Senate Republicans, for example, are reportedly considering canceling some or all of the August recess, a move that would keep their Democratic colleagues, more of whom are in vulnerable seats, off the campaign trail. Indeed, as November approaches, the midterms will only become a greater focus of what's happening in and outside of Congress. You've been on this show a number of times before to talk about your other research, which includes getting kids access to education, mm-hmm. just getting them in the door, or also focusing on the curriculum, on the quality of education, what they're learning in school. Are there a lot of schools around the world, a lot of countries that are still grappling with those basic issues that maybe couldn't even think about an idea of leapfrogging? Mm, yeah. Well, that's part of what intrigues me so much about this idea of leapfrogging. And the answer is yes, there are lots of kids who are in education systems where either they are too remote, they're too poor, have a disability. There's many reasons. They have to work during the day. You know, There's many reasons why kids are out of school and can't access schools. And there's lots of kids all over the world who struggle with that. Now, I think leapfrogging, the idea of leapfrogging, is even more relevant to those kids because traditionally in the normal sort of path of developing school systems, governments focus on access first. We need to build schools and get kids into them. And that takes a long time to construct schools, etc. And then after kids are in, they say, well, we should focus now on improving the quality of academic knowledge and learning. And that takes a while. You got to work with teachers and curriculum and assessment. And then once those two things are kind of underhand, schools or governments start talking about relevance. Are kids being prepared for the world that they're going to go into? And really what you want to do is tackle all those three things at the same time. That is the real leapfrog and probably has the most power for the kids who are out of school and not done any favors by just saying, well, all we need to do is get them into school. We have this example in the book that I think speaks well to this, and that is comparing Finland Mm -hmm. to Madagascar. From my understanding, Finland usually scores the highest globally in the standardized evaluations, the PISA PISA score. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure where Madagascar falls into that. But obviously, Madagascar and its school systems can't do the same kinds of things that Finland is doing in its school system. So how does a country like Madagascar engage in leapfrogging? So I think 
actually countries who have a less well-established education system actually have more potential to leapfrog because a lot of what leapfrogging is going to do is going to try to think about a child's process of learning and developing competencies and in different ways. The standard way is you get a child inside a school building, you sit them in a classroom with others, you have a teacher at the front who instructs them, and that's pretty much universal. You see it everywhere. Although, to be honest, that's not really a great way for kids to learn. All, all the learning sciences, all the research in learning sciences, I should say, rather, that we've you know seen recently shows that you need to be much more experiential. Kids learn by doing. Kids, of course, learn all the time from all types of different sources. So for a country that doesn't have such a well-developed education system, they can think a lot more creatively about the role of technology. And they are. Many innovations are to supplement their learning. They can think a lot more creatively about other adults in the community, whether they're business leaders, whether they're parents, whether they're community faith leaders who have a role to play in developing kids' ability to think critically, to work collaboratively with each other, to solve problems jointly, in addition to the core academic, incredibly important skills of literacy and numeracy and understanding science and math and all that. So there's high potential. Let's talk a little bit about the book itself, the structure of the book, how you approach the research, and how you hope that it will be used by the readers of this book. First of all, what are the mechanics of the leapfrogging approach? I mean, how do educators do it? Right. So we spent a long time thinking about that. First and foremost, the thing we came to a conclusion on was that unlike leapfrogging in other sectors, People often talk about leapfrogging in telecommunications. You you can use the example of sub-Saharan Africa, where whole legacy systems were just bypassed in in favor of new technology, new systems. So most of sub-Saharan Africa did not have to lay landlines for phones. They just jumped right to mobile phones, and wonderful things happened. In schooling, you don't want to discard the legacy system, I would argue. Some people say you do, but I don't think you want to get rid of schools because what is the legacy system? The legacy system is schools, and a lot of people around the world have spent a lot of time getting kids into school. So to us, the real question is now, to leapfrog, you've got to transform what and how kids learn within sort of the existing school system, and there's four big things. One is transforming teaching and learning to make sure it's much more student-centered, The second is transforming how you recognize learning, both in progressing kids within schools and how consumers of educated young people, that's society, employers, community organizations, et cetera, verify those competencies. Third, you have to diversify people and places, like we talked about, sort of really think creatively about tapping the expertise that exists in a community. And fourth, you have to leverage technology and data in a way that's much more effective and results-oriented. All of that has good, sound basis in existing evidence around education transformation. Earlier, you talked about an organization in India that was a private organization. But what is the role of government or what can be the role of government in this? Right. Well, the Brazil example I gave was a government example. And there are a number of other government examples for leapfrogging. Again, I'll stick with Brazil. There's government schools in Brazil. There's particular government schools in Brazil called NAVE. Brazil has different types of high schools. These are secondary schools. They have academic-focused ones where kids are really kind of college-bound. They have technical vocational schools where they're more focused on professional career development. And the NAVE set of schools are government schools that partnered, and this is one thing government can do, 
partnered with Oi, the Brazilian telecoms company, but not really for money, more for expertise. And so that's one thing government can do is to bring in expertise from outside the school system in a way where government can plug them in to the learning process effectively, not hand it over wholesale, but plug it in effectively. And these kids learned the normal curriculum, secondary school curriculum, but they did it in a way that was super interactive. And it was a technical vocational program around skills for the digital economy. So, you know, they learned biology by making an app together in a group around the circulatory system, et cetera, et cetera. Lo and behold, what are the best topping schools in Brazil on academic scores? These technical vocational schools, these Nave schools, not the other academic college prep schools. And one thing government could do is learn about how different the teaching process is and the learning process is in those schools and try to scale that up. It's much more interactive. It's much more team-based. You don't have to sacrifice academic content for 21st century skills. They really go hand in hand. And you mentioned earlier that there is a catalog of innovations that you and your colleagues collated. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah. Our catalog, my poor research assistant, Adam Barton and Eileen McGivney, who have been central with me in developing these ideas, have spent many, many hours and lost much sleep around this catalog of innovations. So we have a global catalog of education innovations that have almost 3,000 education innovations from 166 countries. And we have looked at each one and really tried to understand what each innovation is doing. So what is its goal? Who's implementing it? How is it funded? Where does it work? And also have tried to analyze it around how new verb, quote unquote, leapfroggy is this innovation? Where does it fall on this leapfrog pathway? Those four elements that I talked about before. And collectively, it tells us a lot about the state of education innovation around the world. And is this catalog something that readers of the book can find or can they go to our website and find it? Yes, partially. We didn't include it in the catalog in the book because it was just reams and reams of pages of innovations. There is a very short description of every single innovation in the catalog on the website. Although I am thinking about taking requests. We've been getting a lot of requests as we've been sort of out there talking to folks and reporting back on what we found in our research to the people who we initially did the research with. And a lot of folks have said, oh, could you send me all the Africa-based mobile phone innovations or the U.S.-based teacher pedagogy innovations? So if anybody has a request, I'm going to start taking them and start pulling the types of innovations they want to see and perhaps start posting it online. Excellent. Excellent. Well, let's try to wrap up the conversation this way by, again, kind of looking ahead and thinking about the 21st century skills that you've talked about. I mentioned in the introduction that there are skills that children and adults need to thrive in the era where we find ourselves. Can you talk more about what kinds of skills are needed for the future of work and thriving in the 21st century? Well, the core is this idea of lifelong learning, that young people need to be able to adapt the knowledge and information they have, and they certainly do need knowledge and information. And that, you know, is rigorous academic training fits right into that. They need to be able to adapt what they have to very different contexts, and they need to be able to do that in a way that works with other people. And so we know more and more young people are going to be asked to do what is often termed sort of the uniquely human skills. So interpersonal collaboration, things that require caring and empathy and, you know, problem solving. They're going to be asked less and less to do repetitive 
tasks, whether they're in sort of cognitive tasks like computational thinking or manual tasks such as, you know, whatever physical labor, as long as it's repetitive and in a controlled environment, that's probably going to be automated. So the stuff that's unpredictable, interpersonal, creative is the direction we're heading. Is there something about conditions in the world today that makes leapfrogging more crucial than it might have been just even a generation ago? I think the thing that makes leapfrogging even more crucial today than, let's say, 10 or 20 years ago, possibly, is this idea of the massive growing inequality that we have, not just in the United States, but we see in societies around the globe. And we know that getting a good quality education is one of the most important things that helps young people thrive and be in that group of lucky citizens in our country in the U.S. and in other countries that are able to flourish and thrive, have a good job with good pay and take care of their families. Because of that, we need to lean in on speeding up the pace of change in education. So now where do you take this research? Where do you take the book? What's next for CUE? So we are going to be diving deeply on a couple of pieces of this idea of leapfrogging. We'll probably look much more closely at the teaching and learning innovations and really try to mine that data, mine the catalog, and get much better sense of how you could scale it, some of your questions. And then we're really going to be looking at the enabling environment. I mean, we we set out with this idea of, well, could we even leapfrog? And how would we know? And how would we define it? And I think we're optimistic that we can. Of course, the real question is how can it help transform education systems? And a piece of that is going to be parent demand and acceptance of these types of innovations. And so we're going to start there. Okay. Well, as always, Rebecca, thank you for sharing your time and expertise on the Brookings Cafeteria today. Thank you. You can learn more about Rebecca Winthrop and her new book, Leapfrogging Inequality, Remaking Education to Help Young People Thrive with Adam Barton and Eileen McKivney on our website, brookings.edu, and learn more about the Center for Universal Education at brookings.edu slash universal hyphen education. Thanks to audio engineer and producer Gaston Ribeiro, with assistance from Mark Holscher, to producers Brennan Hoban and Chris McKenna, to Bill Finan, who does the book interviews, and to Jessica Pavone, Eric Abalahin, and Rebecca Weiser for design and web support. And finally, thanks to Camila Ramirez and David Nassar for their guidance and support. The Brookings Cafeteria is brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network, where you can also subscribe to Intersections, 5 on 45, and our events podcasts. Email your questions and comments to me at bcp at brookings.edu. If you have a question for a scholar, include an audio file and I'll play it and the answer on the air. Follow us on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get podcasts and listen to it in all the usual places. If you go to Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the show. Visit us online at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.